Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Dean Baker. This week we'll be discussing coronavirus, corporate greed, and other topics. Dean Baker is Senior Economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, which he co-founded in 1999. His areas of research include housing and macroeconomics, intellectual property, social security, Medicare, and European labor markets. He is the author of several books, including Rigged, How Globalization and the Rules of the Modern Economy Were Structured to Make the Rich Richer. His blog, Beat the Press, provides commentary on economic reporting. Dean Baker, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks a lot for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for all the work you've been doing for quite a while. Uh, So Trump has tried to buy exclusive rights to a possible vaccine from a German company. Why? Uh, To turn around and sell it to the world? It's, you know, I don't fully understand what his motives are, and trying to figure out Trump's motives is probably a <laughs> uh, fool's errand. Um, but what really kills me is just, you know, certainly his thinking about this, but the thinking about it in general, that we we have this idea, or he has this idea, we're competing, that, you know, we want to get the vaccine first, and that, that seems to be what he, what's going on with the guy in the years, press conferences. Uh, we're doing better than anyone else. We're not, but whatever. That's really irrelevant. But to my mind, the point here is we have research teams in Europe, in China, in Korea, in the United States, and they're all working trying to develop a vaccine, and that's fantastic, except they're not cooperating. We would almost certainly see success much more quickly if as soon as they had interesting results, they put them up on the web so that all the researchers everywhere in the world would be able to benefit from it. So rather than trying to compete and see who's, who's get, the, get there first, and obviously the idea is you'll make a lot of money on a patent, if instead we just said, look, we're paying you up front, and that's really true in this case, certainly in the U.S., and I suspect that's true with the other researchers that are being paid to a large extent by the government, we could pick up the whole tab Tell them that everything you do is in the public domain. It has to be put up on the web as quickly as possible. And then when we develop something, we don't have to worry that it's going to be cheap. I mean, they're saying, will a vaccine be affordable? Well, if there's no patent, it will be affordable because anyone can manufacture it. It will be cheap. So to my view, we just it's just kind of incredible. And it's, you know, the patents... In, in the pharmaceutical industry are always a problem, but particularly now when we're facing this worldwide pandemic, that instead of cooperating and thinking how can we get a vaccine as quickly as possible, we have this absurd competition. It's just very painful to see. And and if you only care about 4% of humanity, wouldn't you still be better off with the other 96% of humanity not being sick, uh, having the vaccine? I mean, don't people cross borders no matter what walls you build? Haven't Isn't that where the thing came from in the first place? Well, I wouldn't even make it 496. I'd make it something like, you know, four hundredths of 1%, because the only people who benefit by having this walled off are going to be a relatively small number of people, the researchers and you know, people own a lot of stock in the company that happens to get a patent first. This is just, it's just incredibly foolish policy, and it's just amazing to me that you don't have more people kind of up in arms over it, because it just, 
I don't know. I mean, it's it's not a radical proposition to say science advances most quickly when it's open. I mean, uh, you know, economists, we sort of like to think of ourselves as scientists. We think, you know, economics advances more quickly when we share our research. It's criticized. People review it. People find mistakes. People build on it. And surely that has to be the case when you're trying to design a vaccine. So why we're satisfied to have these research teams working in isolation, and every now and then we get a tidbit, oh, this research team has developed some great thing. Well, it should all be out there. I just, it's just amazing to me that there aren't more people who are upset about that. We, we watch these old videos of Jonas Salk being asked who owns the patent for your vaccine, and he looks back at the questioner as if they're insane and asks, uh, would you patent the sun? Uh, how did we get from there to here? Well, it was a long, long path. And, you know, I've had some occasion to talk with researchers, you know, in, in pharmaceutical industry, and there certainly were many, and there are many today, I'm sure, that, you know, they think of their primary mission as trying to produce things, develop things. They're going to help humanity. That will protect us from diseases or provide cures. That's That's what they think they're doing. But Obviously, that's not the predominant view, and that's not where the money is. So I can't even blame someone. Okay, so you want to do research. Well, great. Who's going to pay you? Well, the drug companies are going to pay you. (laughs) The drug companies want a patent. They want to make a lot of money on it. And just to be clear, I'm not even opposed to them making money. The question is how they do it. So in the case of coronavirus, there's money coming from the federal government. So the federal government's putting up most of the tab. So it's not as though we're asking anyone to work as, as... you know, as a charity, I mean, you know, people need to get paid, and that's reasonable, and they should get, you know, the researchers get decent pay and everything. That's all fine. But the question is, do they get paid up front, that you do the research and get paid up front, or is the idea that somehow you're you're going to come up with a great breakthrough, and then you get paid after the fact because now you have a patent monopoly? And, again, I think, yeah, I've written about this at some some length for years, that I think patents in the pharmaceutical industry are particularly pernicious, but I think never has that really been the case as, as clearly as with the developing a vaccine for the coronavirus. I mean, the, the, the fact that drugs tend to be so expensive, at least in the United States, uh, is that because of the research, or is it more so because of the monopolies? It's because of monopoly. Just to be clear... And there's not really any ambiguity about this. Drugs are cheap. If we're just talking about manufacturing, maintaining safety, manufacturing, distributing them, almost without exception, all drugs would be very cheap. They'd be 10, 20 bucks, maybe a rare one, be 30 or 40 a prescription. They would be very cheap. They're expensive because we give them a patent monopoly. And again, yeah, you have to pay for the research, but we have data from the industry. They spend around $70 billion a year on research. That's a lot of money, except we spend around $500 billion a year on the drugs they, they produce. So just saying we have to pay for the research, that's fine. We do. But we're spending way, way more on the drugs than we'd be spending on the research if we just paid the research up front. And if you just, again, we, we have data on this. We know what generic drugs cost. We'd be paying less than a hundred billion if all these drugs were sold as generics without without patent or related protections. And that gap, four hundred billion dollars, that's enormous. That's about thirteen hundred dollars for every person in the United States. It's about six times what we spend on food stamps each year. So you have all these people running around yelling, Oh, the food stamp budget's too high, people are cheating and blah blah blah. Take the whole budget, multiply it by six. 
And that's the extra money we spend on prescription drugs because we give them patent monopolies. <laughs> Multiply it another several fold, and you you could have a war. Uh, what what you've you've suggested that there's a model for what we actually should be doing in looking at the at the human genome project. Is that right? Yeah. Well, the human genome project that was done that was collaborative. That was the U.S. was the leading funder, but there were other funders. And the big thing there was that all the results were public. It was understood that they were working on a collective enterprise that they wanted all humanity to benefit by, and they posted their results in principle nightly. So every time they had a significant result, they put it up on the web so that researchers all around the world would be able to see it and benefit from it. So that, to my view, is what we should be looking to here, that where we have research teams in Germany and China and the U.S., they have anything worth showing, they put it up, you know, whether that's nightly or, you know, probably depends on, you know, exactly what research they're doing. But the point is, as, as soon as you have something that you think is worth sharing, you put it up there for other researchers to benefit from. Dean Baker, you have a number of, of great articles up at the website of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, uh, and in one you you reply to this notion that the, the important consideration here is that the person or persons who make a breakthrough need to become billionaires as a result. Uh, what is your response to that? Yeah, well, again, we expect people to be paid and the, the, the best people, you know, people are most successful, fine, they should be very well paid. We have things like the Nobel Prize. I think that's great. You know, you could have two or three or four Nobel Prizes, multiply them by five. But the idea that you have to be a billionaire because you had some great breakthrough, I just, I don't really see any logic in that. I mean, it's very clear we don't need that to motivate people because we have all sorts of people who do great work at, at much less money. And if we're going to make a moral argument, one of the things I like is I've had arguments with people, and they say, oh, well, they, these are saved lives, you know, and how much is that worth? And, you know, my point is, the firefighter goes in a burning building, saves a kid. How much is that worth? Well, it's worth a huge amount. Does the firefighter get two, three, four million? No. They get, you know, I'd like to think decent pay, most do, but, you know, they're not going to be super rich. And, you know, I think it's the same with the researchers. And the other group of people I point to, and this to my mind is kind of interesting because I confess, I don't even know who the hell they are. Think of the anti-smoking crusaders. You know, the people who went around 30, 40 years ago to make it illegal to smoke on airplanes or in restaurants and other public places. Think of how much difference that's made in people's lives in terms of saving lives, better health. It's been enormous. Did those people get millions and billions of dollars? I said, I don't even know who they are. You know, but they, their work was incredibly important. We didn't we didn't give them huge sums, but they did it, and it made a huge difference in people's lives. Yeah, you look at the cost of a war like the war on Iraq, and then you look at the people who've protested successfully each time there's been a proposal to start a war on Iran, for example. They don't get a dime, of course. Um, yeah, well, people do things because they're concerned about humanity, and. Yeah, that's a good thing. And again, I don't count on that exclusively in the sense that I don't expect these researchers, many of whom I'm sure put in 60, 70 hours, 80 hours a week. They're very hardworking people. I don't expect them to work for free, but that's not the issue here. We're just saying we don't have to make it so that they're going to get billions of dollars if they're successful. 
Well, thank goodness that millions of people do do things because they care about humanity. I, I think that may work against them being on television or being elected president of the United States. But, but, but what you're talking about in terms of handling the development of drugs seems to be in line with what uh, Senator Bernie Sanders is proposing. It's, it's very less clear to me uh, what Joe Biden is proposing. What do you, what do you make of their positions? Well, Sanders has had different positions. One that uh, I worked on some of the staffers with many years ago was was similar, where you would pay for the research up front, and then everything would be in the public domain. Now, he hasn't pushed that in his campaign, and I, I have no idea why. I mean, and to my view, that makes a lot of sense, and, you know, I wish he did. He has said that we would have, have uh, price controls so that we would be paying something more in line with what they pay in Germany and France and other countries, which I think is a big step in the right direction. But that still relies on patent-supported research and still has <clears throat> all the bad incentives, or at least I should say most of the bad incentives of the current system. Hmm. What about Biden? Biden has been, I'll just say, um, cautious. I, I, he supported Medicare negotiating drug prices, which is a good thing, but you go, what about for drugs that are purchased outside of Medicare and even within Medicare? I mean, the question is, how hard are they going to negotiate? I mean, because it's something we've always been concerned about to say, oh, okay, you know, you're going to negotiate. I mean, if we had Trump's HHS negotiating with uh, the drug companies, they probably won't see much change in their prices. So it's not, it hasn't been a very strong position, I'll just say. Uh, I think you're being very generous. Uh, speaking of speaking of Biden, uh, what about this claim he made in the debate Sunday evening that ordinary people would have suffered dramatically if banks hadn't been bailed out? Is is that just good common uh, rationality, or or is that voodoo economics? Well, it's a variation on voodoo economics, and I'll be fair to him. That is the conventional wisdom in Washington circles, and. You know, I, I've raised this with people, and it's almost like you're just not supposed to talk about it. And no, let me say as clearly as possible. Had we not bailed out the banks, to my view, we would have seen the Wall Street banks. We would have very quickly made the financial sector far more efficient by downsizing these huge BMS, you know, Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. They'd have been out of, out of business for sure. They'd have been bankrupt. Now, the argument is that, oh, that would bring down the economy. Well, no. We have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. That exists so that you and I could keep, you know, we'll have our, our checking accounts or savings accounts. They'll still be there. So the idea that, you know, we aren't going to have any money, that's simply not true. That's why we have the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Now, would the initial hit say that they had improved TARP in <clears throat> October of 2008? Would the initial hit have been worse. You know, the, we were already going into a severe recession. We we're losing two, three, four hundred thousand jobs a month. Would, would the initial hit have been worse? Yes, absolutely. But the idea that somehow that would have forced us to have a decade of double digit unemployment, a second Great Depression, that's just nonsense. And I've asked, I've asked, I don't know how many economists, tell me how that works. What would, what would keep us from the next month having a huge stimulus package? You know, having money for infrastructure, unemployment benefits, all sorts of other things. What would keep us from doing that, and why won't that get us out of this second Great Depression? And no one's ever been giving me, ever been able to give me an answer that makes any sense whatsoever. I mean, sometimes they say Congress wouldn't pass it. They go, well, you know, we could argue over that, but that's a political question. 
that's not you, you're you're making a prediction. You know, so I have economists telling me, you know, their expertise and there's some expert political scientists that we're going to be sitting there with double digit unemployment, and we won't won't be able to get a Democratic Congress to approve a big stimulus package. Maybe, <laughs> but but let's be specific. If that's what you're saying, that's what you're saying. You aren't saying that the collapse would have forced us to have a second Great Depression. What you're saying is that the Democrats in Congress are such assholes that even when we're sitting there with double-digit unemployment, they wouldn't pass a big stimulus package. Again, maybe that's true, but let's be clear what you're saying then. You aren't saying that the, the collapse, the fail, failure to have a bailout caused the second Great Depression. You're saying conservatives in Congress, whatever you want to call them, they're forcing, they would force us to have a second Great Depression. What's happening right now in terms of, of money? We know what's happening in terms of money being given to ordinary people, but what's happening in terms of money being uh, being shoved into banks again? Well, I'm, I have less of an issue with what's going on right now. Most of this has been designed to keep the financial markets operating, which I think is a good thing. Um, we aren't having massive loans on a concessionary basis to the banks is what occurred during the financial crisis, during the bailout. So essentially what you're seeing is the, the Fed coming in to um, keep keep markets operating smoothly. What I, The analogy I make is if you wanted uh, you wanted two tens for a 20, you, you couldn't break a 20, so I handed you the two tens. That's kind of what the Fed's doing here. Um, now, there are other steps that they're doing in terms of relaxing reserve requirements. Um, they lowered the federal funds rate to zero. Um, these are reasonable things to do, in my view, in the, in the context of a slumping economy. I mean, that is what the Fed's supposed to do. It's supposed to try to keep the economy going. And I'd be hard-pressed to criticize, you know, maybe narrowly some some of the specific proposals I might do differently. But the idea that they would act to try and keep the economy stable, I can't really argue with that. The, the argument that occurs to me is that when institutions clearly do have trillions of dollars to play around with, every time anyone proposes doing anything decent for humanity or the natural environment, a Green New Deal, Medicare for All, making college part of public education, there there is this chorus screaming, how are you going to pay for it, how are you going to pay for it? Uh, what would be your answer uh, if you? I'm sure you have been asked this question: How are you going to pay for it? What is? Your yeah, well, answer? I respond to that chorus, and I have good answers, but I don't think this is quite the same story. So, when I give you two tens for a twenty, the question "How are you going to pay for it?" doesn't really come up, and that's kind of what's going on here. So, I think the question "How are you going to pay for it?" is often inappropriate because. There's a lot of things we have no problem paying for because they're priorities of people with power. Um, but then when it comes to something like free college, then it becomes unaffordable. So I, I think the question is quite, you know, it's, it's used to, progress, to prevent progressive policy. But I think it, it is a different story than what's going on now with uh, the Fed trying to keep the financial markets operating. Okay, and and it's not, uh, but it's not just the the priorities of the powerful versus the priorities of ordinary people. It's also short term versus long term. In the sense that, uh, in the long term, not having a green new deal is going to cost trillions. Uh, in the long term, Medicare for all is going to save money. Correct? You will save money. The question is, who does the paying? And that 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 that. I mean, let me put it this way. I think it's a real question in the sense that, okay. I mean, I support Medicare for all, too, but I mean, I have to say, it will involve money. It will involve more money from middle-class people, because as much as, you know, I think we should get more money from rich people, 
it, it almost certainly means more money from middle class. And on the other hand, most middle class people will come out ahead because they aren't going to be paying for health care insurance. They aren't going to be paying uh, co-pays, deductibles. But the fact of the matter is they would be paying higher taxes. Right. So that it, it's a reasonable question. Uh, it can be a reasonable question in some contexts, uh, but come out ahead. Well, I mean, realistically, I can't tell everyone they're going to come out ahead because not everyone will. And I don't just mean, you know, Bill Gates. I mean, there'll be a lot of people, upper middle income people may well, you know, depending how it's structured, they may well come out behind. I mean, the biggest story for me in terms of getting to Medicare for all is reducing payments to providers because it's not just that we throw our money in the garbage giving it to the insurance industry. We pay twice as much for drugs as everyone else, twice as much for medical equipment as everyone else, twice as much to our doctors as everyone else. So depending how much we can get our prices in line with the rest of the world, that's going to determine how many people end up being better off or worse off. If it ends up being the case that we, we aren't able to get our prices in line, we keep paying the same prices, we get rid of the insurers, but we keep paying the same prices, then you have a lot of people who aren't better off. Yes, but we but uh, but we always we always sort of make the headline you're going to pay more money and then the small print, but you're going to actually save more than that by not. Well, I know how the media enough. trashes Medicare for all. I'm just saying if I'm trying to be honest with people, I can't tell everyone they're going to come out ahead because without saying how exactly how it'll be structured, that may not be true. Okay, what they're gonna. They're certainly not going to come out ahead if we don't uh, change the current system. Uh, what what would you recommend uh, that the U.S. government be doing uh, in terms of this this virus crisis? Well, a couple things. One is trying to deal with the, the virus as effectively as possible. And obviously, the Trump administration has been very slow in getting tests available. Um, I mean, it's mind-bogglingly slow. I mean, we consider that Korea has had drive-in testing for over a month. Um, it just, it's just kind of incredible. And today the tests still aren't available for, for people who want them. So, um, one, get the test available. Um, two, make sure, you know, again, testing should be free for everyone. Treatment should be free for everyone. Uh, this is one of the things that, again, I find kind of mind-boggling that even among the, the more liberal people in, in Washington, they're, they're, they seem to think that treatment, free treatment, is a bridge too far and to you, I mean, it's kind, of, it's kind of common sense. No one's going to go in for testing if they think if they test positive that they're going to be stuck with thousands of dollars of bills. So just the flip side of that, if you want people to be tested, then you have to make the treatment free. We also have to do things like make more uh, people uh, available to the, to the healthcare system. So we're having people laid off in the airline industry, restaurants, everything else. We should train people. Just give them, you know, two, three weeks of training so that they can do basic tasks, take temperatures, change bedding, clean surfaces to free up nurses and other better trained professionals because they're overwhelmed. So that would be a really great thing to do. Then beyond that, we talked earlier about, you know, having the virus uh, vaccine developed and treatments, I should say, all that in the public domain. But for all the people who are losing their jobs, I think we have to do a lot to ramp up unemployment benefits, both making them more generous, because typically they're just 40 or 50% of your pay. So it'd be great to up that by, say, 50%, make it 60, 70, 80% of your pay. And then also try to improvise something for all the contract workers, you know, people who, like, work for Uber or aren't classified as regular employees. We could make it so that those people can get unemployment benefits based on their 1099 forms, you know, the tax filings that they get when they have their earnings reported every quarter. 
So we have to make sure <clears throat> that the people who lose their jobs through no fault of their own are able to get by. And then on top of that, <clears throat> you know, try to provide for, you know, basically the people who've intermittently employed, the homeless. I mean, th- this is going to be a really big problem. It's a big problem for everyone, but particularly for those at the bottom who don't have any resources. Uh, a lot of people have talked about paid sick leave uh, in Italy. They've uh, said no mortgage payments need be made. Uh, I'm hearing more conversations about you know basic income guarantee than ever before. Uh, are any of these ideas helpful? Yeah, it's just said paid sick leave. I mean, it's inexcusable. We, you know that we don't have paid, universal paid sick leave, and that's something definitely should be part of. The, we did, took some steps in the first stimulus bill, or whether they're calling it that, response bill. Um, but it, it leaves out a very large number of workers still. Um, a moratorium on evictions, as I understand, both New York and California are moving in that direction. That would be a great thing to do, you know, for at least the duration of the crisis. Um, so those are two very positive steps. Universal income, I, I, you know, that's, I think, a big argument, and I don't think you're likely to get that in this crisis. So I think the real question is, uh, replacing the income of those who lose it from losing their job. And that's why I was focused on unemployment benefits. In the few minutes we have left, uh, apart from emergency measures in this crisis, uh, what can we, how can we use a crisis to move to something better longer term? Uh, often, often these crises are opportunities to, to make things even worse than they were before, to attack Social Security, to, uh, to, to, to profit off people's illness. But, but what, can we, what lessons can we draw from this to move to something better in the long run? Well, certainly the paid sick days. I mean, that, that may not be that huge in the scheme of things, but I think that would be, you know, a good step if we could have that be permanent. Um, if we could do this, do what I was suggesting with, with uh, developing a vaccine through open research and have everything placed in the public domain, um, that would be a fantastic precedent because I'd love to see all our drugs developed that way. Um, you know, again, as I said before, there's a huge amount of money at stake. It also gives perverse incentives. One of the things I, I'm just amazed, I've literally not seen a single news story make just this obvious point. The reason that the drug companies push the opioids so hard is that they had patent monopolies. If the opioids were selling as generics, not to say no one would have pushed them, I'm sure someone would have, but the big money was because we gave them patent monopolies. When you give a company a patent monopoly, you're encouraging them to push their drug as widely as possible, and that means promoting it even when you know it might not be as effective or safe as you're claiming, because you get enormous profits. You're selling a drug for two, three, four hundred dollars a prescription, sometimes more, that costs you twenty, thirty dollars to bring to the market. So that's just kind of common sense. So, you know, if we could change that, that would be huge. I should also say, same story with medical equipment. So when you look at where we're looking at shortages of respirators in many areas, well. Respirators are cheap to manufacture. They're only expensive because pet monopolies. Same story. So I think it gives us a great chance to, you know, make some big inroads into reforming the healthcare system. And again, getting to the idea of free treatment. If we could give people not just free tests but free treatment, um, maybe that's a big step towards convincing people. Yeah, free healthcare would be a really good idea. What, have you seen any news stories, any news networks that don't have ads from drug companies, even any presidential debates that don't have ads from drug companies? No, drug companies are incredibly powerful. And that's why, you know, this is, to my view, just a great opportunity because I can't even get people to think about this. Even, you know, liberal, progressive, 
economist, the, the idea that you could produce drugs without patent monopolies. Uh, I've had people look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language, and I've had you know people get upset and go, well, who would work? I go, do you work for a patent? <laughs> you know, the vast majority of us work for a paycheck. So, you know, it's... So it is the drug companies, yes, they're very powerful, but even, I don't know if even more so, but equally important is the fact that you have this mindset that people just can't get out of that, no, we don't need patents to have people develop drugs. We have to pay them, but we don't need patent monopolies. And it's it really is ingrained in a lot of people's thinking. Uh, it really is. I hope uh, it comes out. I appreciate everything you've been doing uh, to try to get people thinking a different way. We've been speaking with Dean Baker. Dean Baker is a senior economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. His blog is called Beat the Press. He has numerous books. Uh, check him out. Get informed. Dean, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks for having me on. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.